Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the macro trends um, that are involved in making service more strategic. Uh, I'm excited to be joined today by Curtis Novinger, who is the Regional Vice President of Services at P3 Services. Curtis, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Good to be with you, Sarah. Thanks for being here. So before we get into our topic for the day, um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your role at P3, and and your sort of, um, you know, journey in field service. Sure. Uh well, currently, I'm Regional Vice President of Service for P3. P3 is a uh, family of companies across the United States. We have HVAC, plumbing, and electrical businesses, primarily in the plumbing space right now. Uh, and I, my job is to support those companies and help them grow and provide services that help them get better. So prior to joining P3, I was uh, Vice President of Service Operations for Comfort Systems USA. It's about a $3 billion business. They have 40 companies nationwide, about 140 locations. Uh, I worked with teams in sales, operations, and in the last three years I was there, I was doing a lot of equipment of a ser- equipment as a service development, mm-hmm. developing products and remote monitoring systems that allowed us to offer services, uh, uh, yeah, full service agreements. So uh, prior to that, when I was, uh, I got in the industry uh, while I was in architecture school. I worked as a plumber nights and weekends. And when I when I got out of school, instead of going into private practice, I uh, started a plumbing company. And then I sold that company in 2008 to Comfort System USA. Uh, I've got three kids, two of which will be driving next week. Wow, next so- week. I was doing parallel parking last night in the dark uh, with trash cans as cars because we hit some trash cans. So I'll have a lot of extra time on my hands, but my insurance rates are definitely going to go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Wow. That's uh, exciting and scary all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So when we were were preparing for this podcast, we talked, um, you have quite an interesting background in terms of, uh, you know, your experiences growing up and, um, you know, through school and how that we talked a little bit about how maybe that impacts your viewpoints and how you you look at things um, going on around you. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, I, I never thought that I would be a plumber. I my dad and family, uh, we worked on apartments that we we purchased uh, when I was a kid. So I would follow them around and fix air conditioning units and that kind of thing. But uh, my mom was an opera singer. She passed away here a few months ago, but she was uh, had a master's degree in opera from Columbia University in New York. And dad was an international banker. Uh, so I, I my parents got divorced. Uh, my mom said business is evil. You should either play the violin, do something else. And so I went to school at McGill University and studied philosophy for four years, uh, which I realized it's unless you want to be a lawyer, it's very difficult to get a job. And I had that same struggle. So kind of went back to my uh, what I did with my dad as a kid and started fixing houses and 
Uh, that's how I supported myself until I went back to school. Mm-hmm. But I think I studied philosophy partly just to try to understand some of the patterns behind how people think and what drives them. Mm-hmm. And I do that at work. That's just kind of naturally how I, uh, how I think and definitely enjoy identifying patterns in how we, uh, how the businesses operate and just how in general the market works mm-hmm. mostly to identify biases that give people, if you recognize you have a bias and give you a competitive advantage, if you can address it. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I've done over the last few years, both identifying ways of helping customers uh, in unique ways, but mm-hmm. also to uh, build business strategy uh, in a way that you're, you're working in the blue ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than staying in the, the red ocean with all the rest of the competitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's how we got on that topic. Um, my undergrad is in psychology. And I mean, similarly, I feel like it bleeds into everything I do because I'm just very interested in understanding, you know, how people are thinking and, you know, how their mind is working. Um, we had a, a podcast last week with um, an author who is uh a neuroscientist uh, by trade and and talking about change management. And it was so interesting to me, um, you know, to put that context to a lot of the challenges that the people we talk to regularly here have in terms of, you know, well, we're trying to change X, but we're facing so much resistance, you know, and then look at picking apart what's behind that, you know, and it's, I do think it's really interesting and it's, it's a level of, you know, examination that maybe the average bear doesn't bring to those situations. And so having those conversations, understanding those perspectives can be so helpful in then working through, you know, some of those challenges or to your point, you know, developing strategy or, you know, understanding biases, et cetera. So, um, Yeah. But then to your point, you know, you you end up places you didn't really uh, anticipate being um, and life unfolds and, you know, takes you in wild directions. But uh, that's cool. Very good. Yeah. OK, so in in your role at P3, um, you know, you're helping evaluate a lot of different investments in service businesses. And so, you know, kind of taking a look at not only to your point, what, how can we differentiate or, or what, how should we set a strategy that that's in the blue ocean, not the red ocean, et cetera. But, you know, really just taking in what's going on in these different organizations that you're having a look at or evaluating, et cetera. So when you think about what you're seeing, um, and also the experiences you had at comfort systems. So in, you know, inside of uh, the business, where do you think we are on this evolution of making service more strategic? So moving away from sort of the, the very tactical break fix transactional type of service to what I know you and I both have opinions on what it can be. Yeah. And I, I think I, mean, I can speak to my industry 
specifically. Mm-hmm. I think we're way behind a lot of the adjacent markets, like the aerospace, for instance. They're mm-hmm. way ahead of us in that regard. Uh, our industry is made up still very fragmented, which is partly why there's so much interest from private equity. There's about 100,000 plumbing contractors nationwide, give or take, and it's mm-hmm. going up. It's becoming more fragmented, uh, even though there's a lot of consolidation. So what that means is that most of the businesses are small. They're run by a service plumber that struck out on his own, kind of like me. And he's not only just the plumber, he's the accountant, he's the bookkeeper, he's dispatching. And there's not a lot of time in a business like that to work on a business. So Mm -hmm. strategic thinking, if it didn't take place before he started and got in that gauntlet of meeting payroll every week and collecting money, then it maybe doesn't happen for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's certain things going on in the market right now that's changing that. In the At that level, that million to $5 million business, which makes up the majority of the market, then there's uh, the field service management software that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is doing a much better job of not just providing dispatch and routing, but they're offering uh, workflows that... Mm-hmm allow you to structure a business in the most economical fashion. They have much better uh, financial reporting. Uh, A lot of the dashboards give you insight. And once you have that system set up, that kind of strategy, uh, working on the business, just becomes a natural part of of how you do the work. Mm -hmm. So that effort, by and large, has been done by people outside of the business using processes from other adjacent markets to apply them to the plumbing industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other thing that's happening, or, or I guess like I, one of the things I said about, unless you, ha- unless you start the business with a, strate- with a specific strategy in mind, a lot of times you're, you're, you're just being a generic plumber. So mm-hmm. I look, when I'm looking at plumbing companies, I like to see a company that has a, a unique offering. Lots of businesses, you see the trucks on the street, they, they say they do everything. They think that that's a positive thing. They do residential and commercial. They do drain cleaning. They do boilers. They, they basically fix everything. Well, if, if you're working on everything, it's hard to be good at any one thing. Mm-hmm. So companies that start out at least with a, a unique offering or a unique tool or a service that provides them a competitive advantage, oftentimes they're built strategically right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as transitioning from brake fix model to equipment as a service, we're a long ways away from from making that happen globally in mm-hmm. the industry, probably mm-hmm. because of the fragmented nature of the business. And so few of the companies that start out, start out offering equipment as a service mm-hmm. and they evolve very slowly. Yeah. I think the, the pressures in that regard are coming from outside the industry. So you have uh, first tier distributors, that are, are getting into equipment as a service and they're becoming direct competitors with their, their customers, the mm-hmm. subcontractors, but that's becoming more commonplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's happening up the food chain. So before that quote, say, say you're building a high rise apartment complex before the actual construction documents get sent to the subcontractors, the equipment rooms are being pulled out of the scope of work and being given to a first tier distributor. And so the, the subcontractors don't even see that scope of work. So they don't even know that their customers 
are or their vendors mm-hmm. are actually a direct competitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have a lot of that here in Central Texas with central plants being offered as equipment as a service, and plumbing construction companies uh, they're putting in the piping. They they're excited about doing the work. Mm-hmm. But the reality, the fact is that the highest profit scope of work in that in that uh, high rise building is the central plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question about strategic versus tactical. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it makes sense. So in plumbing specifically, there's a, a long way to go. And it sounds like with what you're telling me is happening, that the progress that is being made is starting on the commercial side. Right. I mean, it's, you're talking about building these, uh, new developments and that's where this concept um that is likely mutually beneficial for the the people that are you know building the infrastructure versus the suppliers that are offering the equipment as a service even though i know they're leaving the contractors out of the equation if you just take it a step up and look at how that relationship is developing the people building these buildings know that there's value in being able to consume the equipment as a service and the Mm -hmm. suppliers of that equipment are recognizing that even though they're not, the plumbing contractors aren't always recognizing that those suppliers are becoming a competitor. Right. Correct. Okay. And, and 10 years ago, if, if we came up against a, say a train distributor mm-hmm. in a in a new construction job and we realized they were also bidding the equipment we'd call them and say hey we're a bidder on this and they would back out mm-hmm. now they're not in that situation because that that scope of work isn't even offered to us mm-hmm. and so we, we're not in a situation where we can ask them to back out because we're not competing with them they already have the work right right and that's how they've dealt with it and that was 10 years ago now it's just a generally accepted uh practice and uh, I, th- I think in some ways subcontractors uh, haven't realized how much work has stopped coming to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So let me, let me rewind back for one minute and then we're going to come back to, to talking a little bit about the as a service. So um, when you're looking at different organizations um for P3 to potentially invest in. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, you know, what stands out to you um, in terms of uh, indicating that they're a good candidate. And then on the other hand, you know, what are some red flags that make you think we'll stay away from from these organizations? Well, when we do our, our market analysis, of businesses before we even call the companies, we're we're checking the size of the business, uh, the financials to a certain extent, uh, and identifying whether it fits our investment model. But once we get to a point where we're doing site visits, uh, if I'm going on a site visit, I'm looking for things like a lot of trucks in the parking lot. If there's a bunch of service vehicles that aren't out on the road, they're sitting there. That tells me about how the business is being run. Uh, if I'm meeting with an owner, uh, if they answer their phone every five minutes and they can't take an hour away from the business, that tells me about kind of the 
fragility in some ways of the business. Mm-hmm. When we look for a company, we're, we're definitely looking for businesses that have some kind of succession plan. They have a strong second that's working in the business and the owner is in a position where they can step back and the, mm-hmm. the business will continue operating without us, without, without him or her. Uh, things that concern us, believe it or not, rapid growth over the last year or two is something that, that we worry about. Sometimes it takes a while for growth like that to be absorbed into the natural processes of the company, and it can put it at risk of falling back uh, to, you know, reduced in size once we purchase it. Mm-hmm. So we look like to see regular sustained growth over a number of years as opposed to rapid growth over the last couple. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, we look at employee retention. Got great employee retention. Says something about the culture. Uh, and then, of course, we once we start getting into the due diligence piece of it, we're looking for any kind of legacy legal issues or high risk uh, safety, and OIR ratings, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay, so let's go back to talking then about some of these macro trends. Okay, that you're watching, that others are watching, that that are going on. So. Going back to the conversation around as a service, okay? Mm-hmm. So we started talking about sort of, you know, where things are today, particularly versus 10 years ago, okay? And what's kind of going on right now um, at the equipment supplier level versus the plumbing contractor um, standpoint. So what... I'm interested to hear your thoughts on then is what is the untapped potential? Like, how can this play out? Because I'm, you know, I I obviously don't know a ton about the plumbing industry in particular, right? And so Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, um, I'm interested to hear how this is going to evolve or how you think it it could evolve in the, the most positive way. There's obviously a lot of opportunity, right? And so whether it takes 10 years, 20 years to to really see that opportunity, you know, land, um, what do you think is is going to happen? Well, so I think of that in two terms. So in terms of what's keeping the brakes on growth mm-hmm. and then what are the opportunities for maybe a different strategy or some kind of new business, new mm-hmm. growth. So, and the, it's, no, it's no secret that the skilled labor shortage is causing an issue. Mm-hmm. So I feel like companies that can solve that problem better or faster or uniquely are in a competitive advantage and then have the opportunity to grow. Uh, it's... 47% of the workforce is female, but mm-hmm. less than 2% of the workforce is in our actual trade. And even smaller number is physically working in the field. Mm-hmm. They might be in dispatch or in accounting, but they're not working with their tools. That is a huge miss on our part. And when we, you can't, you shouldn't be talking about a labor shortage without addressing that opportunity to fix it. So mm-hmm. how do you reach out to women and, and get them excited about working with their hands in the field? One of the one of the effects of having a bunch of small businesses in the plumbing industry is that the people with the financial decision power 
come from the field because the companies aren't large enough to go hire a CPA and put them in a position where they're an operations manager or a CFO. It's a small business of maybe 10 employees. Mm-hmm. So if the majority of your industry is made up of small businesses in the one to $3 million revenue uh, phase, then and most of the decision makers are men mm-hmm. because they came out of the field, then the industry as a whole has a bias against uh, just seeing the world through a, a male lens. Mm-hmm. So there's not, not only is an opportunity to, to solve the skill shortage by bringing women into the industry, but you bring in a whole new perspective uh, of how to run a business, how to treat employees, how to what kind of strategies to use. And in the residential space, 85% of the decision makers uh, in the home are women. Mm-hmm. And so why wouldn't you have women running the company so that they can communicate with their customer in a way that men just don't know how to do? Mm-hmm. So. I think that's one opportunity. One of the, I was thinking about this, and of course there's a whole bunch of obvious answers to this question, but one of the things I've seen happen just in the last two years in Texas, but throughout probably the world, is two weeks ago, we had a, an ice storm. Mm-hmm. I didn't have power for eight days, didn't have uh, water for a while. Uh, it's not a good thing for your wife to say you're a plumber and you're, we're the only one on the street that doesn't have water. Go fix it. But the, what is that? We had two years before that in Texas, we had this massive snowstorm. Mm-hmm. So within space of two years, we've had two storms that were worse than anything else that's happened in the last hundred years. What's happening right now is the insurance claims are finally hitting market two years later. And so premiums are going up mm-hmm. and people that are building high rise buildings have risk management programs. And they're saying, look, unless you have a smart pipe system for this project, your umbrella coverage is going to be 10 times less, or your premium is going to be more, or your deductible is going to be a lot higher. Uh, we, we just started construction on a 53-story high-rise apartment in downtown Austin, and the umbrella for leaks was $40 million. But then when they started doing the risk management program, they said, well, no, we're going to reduce, unless you have some way of shutting the water off, if there's a leak, your umbrella coverage is $4 million. Wow. Our personal deductible was 50000 prior to the storm two years ago. It's now mm-hmm. 250000 So what's that mean? Where's that? What's that do? I, I don't think that trend's going to change. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to continue to have unusual storms that are going to cause wide-scale damage. Insurance premiums will continue to go up. And so where's the opportunity for plumbing? Well, obviously, applying technology to piping to predict failure mm-hmm. is an opportunity. And that's something that we've gotten involved in pretty heavily. Uh, we're installing systems on our construction sites that allow us to turn the water off at night. We have sensors. Uh, and we're also metering the water to determine whether or not there is a leak. Mm-hmm. And then we have a whole team of people that are monitoring those systems um, remotely. Mm-hmm. And we're offering that service as a, uh, equipment as a service. So we're offering that as a program where you uh, you hire us for X number of dollars per month and we'll take care of uh, the security of your water system mm-hmm. while the construction is you know, in service. So um, other trends, uh, chat GPT. I'm going to throw it out because it's all over the market right now. Mm-hmm. So how does that apply to plumbing? 
Well, a lot of decisions are made online right now. And when we hire a marketing company, unfortunately, they tend to create organic content that is just rotten because they have to throw in all these keywords Mm -hmm. and it has very little value. And what I see happening is that content is going to get better, Mm -hmm. but it's also going to become more common. So organic search is going to change rapidly over the next few years and figuring out how to be successful in that space is a limiter to growth. If you can't figure out how to be one of the top 10, you know, search results uh, for a new customer, Mm -hmm. then you're going to get a, you're not going to have a growth opportunity that you should have otherwise. So uh, I still think that there's space for true content Mm -hmm. and, and not only just to increase your uh, results in Google, but to build culture and build family, build rapport with your employees mm-hmm. and coming up with a program to generate that kind of talent content, celebrate your employees, um, document your potlucks and show people that your training opportunities is increasingly important. Mm-hmm. But chat GPT is going to make it easier. I just, we were just, um, writing bios for our guys. So one of the opcos, we dispatch a technician that sends a picture of their, of the technician that's going and then a, a brief bio of who, who they are. We use chat GPT to do that. It took us 10 minutes. The bios wow. are amazing. It was written by someone, one of the dispatchers mm-hmm. where that would have taken all kinds of time going back and forth and editing it. Then um, they, I mean, they're, they're good. So, yeah. um, um, another thing I think that's going to happen is uh, flat rate pricing is ubiquitous in the residential space. Mm-hmm. I see it going, I, th- I see it happening in commercial service really soon. Mm-hmm. It's already apartment complexes, multifamily businesses, they, they, they're already asking for it. I really think that that's going to expand into the commercial market, mm-hmm. which means that the hourly employees in commercial service will be given the opportunity to work on commission. Uh, I think I see that expanding. Mm-hmm. So, and how do you think that will change—not change, but impact the recruiting of new talent? Uh, it definitely increases the compensation for the employee. Mm-hmm. It. It allows, it takes the uncertainty from the employer away from paying an employee a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a lot of times there's a risk to paying an hourly employee a lot of money because it's not directly tied to revenue or to uh, gross profit. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a commission-based model, it's directly tied to profit. Right. So if a uh, if you set it up properly, if your plumber is making money for the company, they're making a lot of money and everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to a certain extent, also the customer is getting better value because mm-hmm. they have someone that's talking to them about their options. They're getting pricing before the work is done and they're more in control of how to spend their money. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the TNM model, the customers are buying a stake, not knowing what the market price is. Mm-hmm. And, and they're sitting having to pay for it, you know, even if they don't like the steak. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. 
So one of the other things we talked about when we were um, chatting for this session was around leadership. Mm -hmm. So how does that factor into all of this? Leadership. Uh, in what context? So we talked about plateaus um, caused by leadership. So what that makes me think of is that there's, you know, some really traditional old school um, leaders in place that aren't maybe mm -hmm. as willing to see some of the potential or try new things or think differently, et cetera. Uh, yeah, that, maybe I'll get at it. We can probably get at this a lot of different ways, but, mm -hmm. but one of the things I think about is when you grow a business, there tends to be revenue plateaus. Mm -hmm. There's a, a plateau at a million dollars, at 4 million, at 8 million, at 15, 30, 50, 100, 150. And a lot of times each of those plateaus uh, require, in order to get through a plateau, it requires the leader to evolve mm -hmm. and develop new skills. So the $1 million plateau to the $4 million plateau is that leader has to get out of his truck and trust other people to do the work and take care of his customers for him. Mm -hmm. For the $4 million to $8 million plateau, the leader needs to find someone in the office he can hand or she, typically he, right, can hand off control to mm -hmm. so they can focus on marketing, growing sales, um, developing technicians. Oftentimes, the reason $4 million businesses fail is because their business they're not being run as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get into the eight, $15 million range, uh, it's about bringing in multiple trades, multiple offerings. There's business, different business strategy. You have to, for 4 million, maybe you're offering HVAC as well as plumbing, or you're moving into a different market. So being able to structure an org chart that's that much more complicated requires another skill set. Uh, but as far as leadership goes, I think some of it, leaders that can make that transition, that can grow, are leaders that are willing to spend time being ignorant. Really, really being spending time going, you know what, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Reaching out for help or just genuinely self-reflecting and saying, man, I just can't seem to get past $4 million. What do I need to do differently? Mm -hmm. And that's not an, it's not an easy skill to develop right mm -hmm. no one wants to feel ignorant and and yet being able to lean into that space uh is one of the main limiters to growth mm -hmm. so leadership in general what does it mean i i think i think one of the struggles right with with transitioning from traditional break-fix models to equipment as a service is is having the guts to act on a very risky, scary uh, transition. Mm -hmm. and, and we've talked about swallowing the fish and how do you deal with drops in revenue, and cash flow issues when you're growing a new business. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think in our market, really, that's why I think that work will go to adjacent businesses or companies that start out with the goal of being an equipment as a service business and having backing 
perhaps from private equity. Mm-hmm. I don't see as many transitions taking place in the smaller fragmented market that makes up most of the plumbing industry. Yeah. And that was kind of a point I was going to come back to because when you were explaining what's happening right now with the suppliers starting to take that on and the plumbing contractors not even necessarily being aware of that competition, Mm -hmm. I, I was going to come back to that and ask like, so can that even change? Right. Because it kind of seems to me like that will only snowball, right? I mean, the more those suppliers see the benefit and the value of those partnerships, the more of them they're going to do. And I don't see a plumbing contractor being capable in most senses of taking that on, you know what I mean? Like winning that competition, but maybe that's just limited view. I don't know. No, I, I think of like, when you look at the trying to figure out how to unpack that, I, I guess I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I think in general, that's going to happen less And a lot of equity money that's been hitting the market for decades now has been focused on aggregating fragmented business, Mm -hmm. showing value by buying a lot of companies. That's what Comfort Systems started doing in 99. Mm -hmm. And they so you so so it's an it's a i'm sure there's mba terms for this but you're essentially aggregating a bunch of fragmented businesses Mm -hmm. that's i think the money that's going to change and help us transition to equipment as service is going to come almost from venture capital angel Mm -hmm. investing where they say look let's start this whole new platform we're not going to buy an existing platform we're going to give you money to go play in equipment as a service Mm -hmm. and grow the business from the ground up and it might be that you take an existing company that's been doing distribution mm-hmm. you say look let's start and build a service business but instead of just doing break fix we're going to use your warranty team and we're going to do new installs as a service mm-hmm. i i think that's where the main change is going to happen mm-hmm. unfortunately do you feel the demand is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense. It does. It's, it just it makes does. sense. And so much else in our world has already moved to a subscription model. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just, um, it does make sense. Same, the the example you gave about the pipes, you know, and offering that as a service, monitoring, you know, et cetera. I mean, it's just, to me consumers, whether those are individual consumers or commercial consumers, want the simplicity of just saying, yes, we will pay you if you worry about just making sure this works. You know what I mean? If you can just Mm -hmm. tell us our building won't flood and that, you know, X, Y, and Z will happen the way it should, tell us where to sign up, we'll pay you monthly for that and all is well, right? And there's obviously in the examples that we've, you know, talked through on here, there's a lot of ways that that setup is equally valuable to the provider of said as a service. If they're understanding the opportunity for what it is, right. And that's the challenge with 
you know, what we're talking about is who's capable of transitioning, you know, or is it more to your point, new entrant, right? You know, like if you think about just a couple of the stories we've had on this podcast, we did a podcast with CARE um, in Singapore, and they have over, I think it's about a decade, converted their entire business to as a service. Really cool story. Um, we did a, a podcast with Baxi in the UK, um, and they're earlier on in that journey, but doing something similar. Now, there's some differences, though, in the sense of they're being nudged significantly by um, environmental regulations, right? So it's like there's this additional pressure to react where if you strip that out, you know, would they still be where they are on that journey? But then you think about another one we did was with Cool Mill. Now, different industry, they're a rice milling company, but they are a disruptor in a very traditional industry who came in, to your point, you know, um, and Alec from, from there and I even talked about the fact that he has it a lot easier not having the legacy right to overcome. I mean, this is how it was begun. It's different. He's not saying it's easy, right? Because he still has to navigate the existing way of doing business with the people he's selling to, right? Like it's still different for the customer. But that's one battle instead of being a company that's transitioning, who's battling that plus a whole internal battle of no, this is different than what we do. We do this, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, I guess I've seen examples um, on both sides. You know, Care is one that did a good job of transitioning a legacy business to as a service. Cool Mill, you know, spoke about the advantages of being a new entrant and not having to, you know, do a lot of that um, evolution. But I think what's clear is the demand is there and will only continue to increase. And the opportunity is there for someone to take, right? Um, It's just a matter of who and how. Um, I I agree. I I think there's another way of going at this. Well, first of all, a lot of the money going into our industry from private equity particularly, is being invested in that aggregate model mm-hmm. as opposed to coming up with a, a unique business, business strategy mm-hmm. like equipment as a service. So, And there's still a whole lot of, of good work to be done there and efficiency and uh, the better training, better safety. There's a whole lot to be done there. So I think that will continue. Mm-hmm. But if you step back and you ask yourself from a customer's perspective, what do you want to what conversation do you want to have as a customer when you have a broken system mm-hmm. do you want to talk about the plumbing no most people don't care about the plumbing and mm-hmm. yet back to the whole fragmented nature of the industry most of the people coming to talk to the customer want to tell you all about the plumbing because they're proud of it that's what mm-hmm. they want to talk about mm-hmm. and so there's this natural disconnect right at that interface between the customer and the technician between what the customer wants and what the the 
plumber wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you, that's why I think the solution is not going to come from our industry. It'll come mm-hmm. from an industry that knows what the customer really wants and what they care about, which is for their, you know, their air to have cold air. And it's not even cold air. They don't care about cold air. They care about the conference room being the right temperature for, mm-hmm. for when they, they have visitors come in or they want, mm-hmm. they want their plumbing to work when Aunt Melba comes over and they're having Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, so I, I think, and we, and just to give you a concrete example, about five years or so ago, we, we had a national program to increase the full service agreement sales at Comfort Systems. Mm-hmm. We had this major effort. We spent a lot of money. Comfort Systems spent a lot of money training sales staff. We took a bunch of sales staff that was used to selling preventive maintenance or scheduled maintenance and brought them in and trained them on all these new tools about how to how to sell full service, which is like the first step towards equipment as a service. Mm-hmm. It was a complete flop. It did not work. And because it was fundamentally a, a different conversation mm-hmm. that had to take place about financial and benefit and not taking care of the equipment and just checking off a task list that, that the manufacturer is recommending you do. So how do you make that transition? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I honestly don't know how to do it inside the industry for yeah. those two reasons. Yeah. So we definitely don't have time to get into this today and it may be a bit too deep, but when you were talking about how this may evolve um, and you said about how, you know, customers don't care. They don't want to hear about the plumbing details. They just want it to work. Right. And how, you know, ultimately we could find ourselves at a point where it, it is as a service, you know, it's just, you know, I need this thing to work. I will pay you to do that. I don't care about any of the details. What I started thinking about is, and this is deep, so bear with me, um, is how does that compound the challenge we already have getting people into the trades? Because you're essentially taking a situation where historically, and maybe even currently, you have trades, usually men or women, running these companies that take a lot of pride in what they do. But the less interest the customer has in that trade, and the more it becomes this kind of, you know, just high level, no, you just make it work, you know, uh, conversation, does that exacerbate the challenge we already have today to get people in? Because at the end of the day, that work, still has to happen. You know what I mean? Like you can include, you know, remote monitoring and even remote resolution and you can modernize it, but there's still going to be a need for a plumber that goes to a building and fixes X, Y, and Z, right? So the less interested the customer becomes in the details, does it become harder to get people that want to do this invisible job you know what i mean yeah. that's um, such a good question i i, I like i said question. we might have to yeah. park on it and come back okay. because we are we are almost out of time but you know that just got me thinking about yeah. you know the path this will all take and maybe you know maybe it's worth thinking about and coming back and talking about like how so how do we solve for that right like how do we what's what's the answer right i don't know but 
It's interesting. And this is how someone with a degree, degree in psychology thinks say, about It's a psychological, psychological question. For sure, for sure. Um, but there's opportunity there. Yeah. yeah. And it's just something, I guess, to be aware of, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things that we might not be thinking about all of the implications of what I think is a huge opportunity. Don't get me wrong. I think as a service is one of the the coolest opportunities that exists for companies that you know, are installing and servicing things. Um, because when it when it works, it's so mutually beneficial. And it's really, really cool to see it come together. But I'm just wondering yeah. if, you know, um, from a marketing perspective, like I always say, like, we have a field service branding problem. And will that branding problem be, you know, amplified as we get further down this path? So... I have one one comment. It's mm -hmm. a psychological comment, so maybe okay. you'll appreciate it. Uh, when a plumber arrives on a job site and there's something broken and they're able to fix it, they get an emotional charge. I mean, mm -hmm. it is so much fun to be, and I could tell you stories about it, right? So if that system doesn't break, how do you give that same employee that same self-satisfaction? Mm-hmm. There is no, he's not the superhero coming in to save the day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's something that should be acknowledged. Yeah. 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 Yes. So good food for thought. Um, mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So Curtis, we've talked a lot about your viewpoints on the industry and what's happening and what will continue to happen. But if we just look inward for a moment and think about, you know, your own experiences, uh, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from being a leader in service? Hmm. I, I think, I think ultimately, and this is my hope, but I think I've, there's some truth here. People genuinely at their core want to help other people. Mm -hmm. And I saw that with the ice storm all the people helping each other get trees out of their houses in their front yards, they genuinely want to. And fundamentally, that's what the service industry is all about. It's mm -hmm. providing, showing up and being of service. And if you can, as a leader, maximize the amount of time people can focus on that and minimize the amount of time that they're worried about politics and detail, fixing processes, then you'll have a much happier company mm -hmm. and much happier customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very good advice. I like it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing uh, your thoughts with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. Make sure you subscribe to the Future of Field Service Insider, which uh, will make sure that you get the latest content we've produced delivered to your inbox every other week. Uh, you can also now view the schedule for the 2023 Future of Field Service live tour dates um, and register for the city nearest you. You can do all of that on the website. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.